The Renaissance physician Paracelsus once claimed that, as a result of his extensive research in the field, only the dose makes the poison. In a somewhat more poetic way, he was simply encapsulating something that your mother may have told you. Everything in moderation. The names of poisons we know from crime novels, things like strychnine, arsenic, and even radiation, have both the power to help and the power to harm. It's all a question of dosage. Dosage, and of course, intent. My name is Richard Shepherd, and this is Hallowed Histories. Murder by poison became something of a craze in England in the 19th century, and East Anglia was not immune. During this era, it was relatively easy to procure poisons. Not only were substances like arsenic used for killing vermin, but equally toxic substances could be found in products as seemingly innocent as beauty products, clothing dye, paint, wallpaper paste, and of course, medicine. One example of these medicines, Fowler's Solution, claimed to be a treatment for skin disorders that could also alleviate pain and even cure syphilis, when in fact it was a simple mixture of arsenate, a form of arsenic, and lavender water for scent. Administering poison was often as easy as getting hold of it. Arsenic trioxide, for example, has no odour or taste and could be added to the victim's food or drink without being detected. The symptoms it produced were much like those of common diseases such as cholera or ailments like gastroenteritis. And as toxicology was still in its infancy, many physicians could be forgiven for confusing a victim of poison with a victim of a range of maladies ranging from anything from old age to indigestion. In those rare cases when it could be proved that the individual died as a result of ingesting poison, it was often difficult to charge the poisoner. First, it had to be proved that the suspected murderer administered the poison with malice of a forethought. This meant that a motive had to be established, which normally ran along those familiar fault lines of greed, lust or jealousy. Although other poisonings had a more financial motivation. Because poisoning was so difficult to prove, insurance companies were often required to pay out benefits even when poisoning was only suspected. The reliance on poison as a murder weapon, especially by women, can be seen as symptomatic of the double standards that existed when it came to marriage. Poisoning one's spouse was easy, you see, when you compared it to getting a divorce. A divorce was difficult as fault had to be determined and unequivocally proven, and even if this could be accomplished, to divorce was regarded as socially scandalous, especially to a woman. No wonder some women trapped in a loveless, abusive marriage reached out to the chemist rather than the solicitor. Although, as we shall see, motives are often rarely pure. Another tragic underpinning to the upsurge of murders by poisoning was poverty. In the 19th century, birth control was far from foolproof, and aborting a fetus was considered a serious criminal act that if carried out after the fetus starts to move and kick carried a sentence of death for the mother. Families who could not afford to feed their sons and daughters might resort to killing them off in utero, or even in the crib, rather than forestalling a long and painful death from starvation. All these sad stories and grim motivations can be translated into the grim black and white of statistics. According to a census report taken in 1861, approximately 600 deaths were ascertained to be the result of poisoning, many more of which went unconvicted, and as we have seen, many, many more of which would have gone unreported. Things got so bad that the law made attempts to halt this crime wave, 
legislation such as the Arsenic Act of 1851 was drafted. It stated that all chemists were required to keep a poison book, listing who bought arsenic and for what purpose. Fatally though, only arsenic was regulated, which was, although the most common poison by far, it left potential murderers with plenty of other options. Strychnine, mercury and herbal poisons were good alternatives, and in most cases equally difficult to prove and detect. It was not until 1868 that the Pharmacy Act was passed, a piece of legislation that set up a register of people qualified to make, dispense and sell toxic substances. More extensive records began to be kept and customer signatures were required at the point of sale. Now, although such measures drastically reduced the number of victims of poisoning, of course it did not stop these crimes altogether and conviction was still hard to ensure. When they did go to trial, they were often sensational cases. And such was the case of Charles Danes, who in 1839 earned the nickname the Hempnell Poisoner. Charles Danes was a carpenter, a Methodist and a family man with a wife and three children. On March the 11th, 1839, Hannah, his wife, two of his daughters and his neighbor complained of excruciating stomach pains. Charles Danes asked them what they had had to eat or drink that could cause this. Mrs. Danes weakly replied that they had had only tea. Danes, who apparently had a love of theatrical, replied, well, surely there is nothing in the water, and then went on to speculate that the incident may have been sparked by a mouse who might have trod through some poison powder and entered their water pot, thus contaminating their supply. The doctor was duly called and attempted to treat the four victims, but the Danes' three-year-old daughter and their neighbor died a short time later. Their stomach contents were then examined and arsenic was found in significant quantities. Danes was arrested and charged with murder. At the trial, it was discovered that he had been having an affair with a local woman, one Anne Lloyd, whom he told that his wife was sickly and not long for this world. He was found guilty after only an hour's deliberation was subsequently sentenced to death. Before being executed, he made a full confession, admitting that he had tried on previous occasions to poison his wife. He was hanged outside Norwich Castle one month later on April 27th and according to reports he died a long and excruciating death, convulsing as if poisoned as he hung from the hangman's noose. In 1819, John Pycroft intended to kill his wife Elizabeth using arsenic purchased supposedly to kill vermin. But, in an unfortunate turn of events, it was his infant son who died. Apparently he infused his wife's food with poison that she then shared with their son. Pycroft, being that sort of man, bemoaned the fact that his wife had survived rather than his son dying and was quickly taken into custody. Reports suggest that under cross-examination, Pycroft alternated between being a bully and a whinger, switching between violent rages and an equally charmless self-pity. And not only were his manners lacking, his looks also left much to be desired. The Norfolk Norwich Chronicle described Pycroft as being diminutive and decrepit, being only four feet two inches tall. He made quite a spectacle with his head being extremely ill-proportioned to his body and his limbs being an unusual size. Questions even arose as to how he managed to wed in the first place, as he had neither looks, nor money, nor apparently a winning personality. With this barrage of public and legal hatred, he quickly broke down and confessed. His reason for poisoning his family being, to get rid of my wife and child, of whom I can no longer live with. Now I am done, said Pycroft, for the taking of the child will be a doer for me. I shall do to Norwich Castle and never come back no more. 
I would not mind being hanged if my wife died too. He was convicted on three counts. First, for willfully and with malice putting a quantity of arsenic into some pork and potatoes prepared for his wife and child. Secondly, for willfully and with malice putting a quantity of arsenic into some tea prepared for his wife and infant child. And thirdly, for administering the poison with the intent to kill. The judge commented that in the history of the criminal law of England, a more abominable, more deliberate and more deep formed design was not to be found. He then sentenced Pyrocraft to death by hanging and dissection. The sentence was carried out on Monday, August 15th, 1839. Apparently, the hangman misjudged the drop because Pycraft hung for roughly eight minutes, convulsing and struggling for breath before finally being pronounced dead. Nobody, it appeared, like poisoners, least of all hangmen. The last case we will look at in this episode, that of John Stratford, the so-called dumpling poisoner, is a little stranger. Stratford was reputedly someone with intelligence and ambition who threw his life away by committing adultery and eventually murder. Stratford, the son of a peasant farming family, taught himself to read and write by the light of the moon using a gravestone from the local church as a desktop. It's a rather gothic beginning took root, and he eventually became a whitesmith, which is kind of like a blacksmith, but it worked with lighter metals and tin, and then subsequently became an engineer. The local papers pinpointed the start of his self-destructive tendencies when Stratford started reading dangerous pamphlets, such as the works of Thetford-born revolutionary Thomas Paine. Up to this point, Stratford was described as being a loving husband and father for his six children. The Stratford family were popular and almost respectable, with many friends in the bustling city of Norwich. They had befriended the Briggs family early on, but while the Stratfords had, had prospered, the Briggs family had suffered. Their patriarch, Thomas Briggs, had gotten into debt, and in 1829 was remanded to a nearby workhouse where, to pile on his misfortunes, he suffered from what was described as a cancer of the face. Jane Briggs, Thomas's wife, was heard to say, what a blessing it would be if God would release him from his suffering. Stratford had no such concerns, apparently. He was a handsome, ambitious man who enjoyed an active social life, and once he had achieved his desired status, he began to spend more and more time enjoying the rustic gaieties of the district. Part of this was conducting an affair with Jane Briggs while her husband was in the workhouse. When Jane fell pregnant, John Stratford began to plan the death of Thomas Briggs, and then presumably run away with Jane and start anew. It might have worked, but for a rather horrible twist of fate. It was a combination of Stratford's profession as a whitesmith, a profession which commonly used arsenic, and Stratford's pretension to be a gentleman farmer in which he milled flour. Putting these two together, Stratford poisoned some flour that was meant to be taken and consumed by Thomas Briggs. But before the poison flour could be used by Briggs, it was confiscated by the matron of the workhouse, one Rhonda Burgess, used it to make dumplings which she fed to her husband John, who died soon after eating them. Tracing the flour back to John Stratford, he was subsequently arrested, convicted and sentenced to death and subsequent dissection. He was the first man to be executed at the new city jail just outside St. Giles's Gate. His body was then put on public display outside the Guild Hall, after which his corpse was remanded to the Norwich and Norfolk Hospital, where a cast was made of his head and shoulders for phrenological purposes. In a suitably gothic end, the doctor in charge of the dissection commented that Stratford's brain was one of the finest and firmest that he had ever seen. Join us on our next episode as we look at more cases of poisoning in East Anglia as arsenic fever grips the country 
and scandals explode in some unlikely places. Please rate, review and subscribe to this podcast through whichever podcatcher you use and feel free to get in touch with us at hallowedhistories at gmail.com. This episode was printed by me, Richard Shepard, with research done by Dr. Linda Shepard and technical production by Stephen Parks. It was recorded at the UEA's Media Suite in Norwich, to whom we are indebted for their continued support, as we are equally indebted to the Norwich Heritage Centre. Thanks very much.